It's Monday, July 12th, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. This is Dave. And this is Pete, and we're on the road for Radio Free Oz on Bob, the 57-foot yacht with its captain, BP CEO, Horny Wayward, uh, Tony Hayward at the helm. Oh, welcome aboard, boys. And with him is Mississippi Governor Haley Barber. What a beautiful day for sailing. The sea like moose. Uh, where are you uh, headed there uh, now, Tony? Well, I'm sailing around the world to offer my glad hand to all the sheiks and sheiks and Russians and Greeks who've partnered with BP. <laughs> oh! Ah! Watch it, it's those damn birds again. Albatrosses keep falling out of the oil rain and landing around my neck. <laughs> well, I'm so glad to sail out of here away from all the, the dead birds and the crowds of people suffering from unemployment. It's a, it's a disease, isn't it? More like an epidemic. Uh, we don't seem to be making much headway, Tony. Well, I could usually get through the gulf in a day, but uh, not in these heavy seas. Oh, that six-foot-thick oil scum is, is bloody hard to cut through. That's no scum, Tony. What? What reminds me of the slick sheen from a criss-craft rafting by pulling a good-looking girl and a well-built guy. Hmm, I don't think the scum is your biggest problem, Tony. I think mm, that is... Oh... Mother of Pearl! Jeez. It's the whitening whale! The biggest super skimmer in the world! Look at those booms! Oh. They must be a thousand feet long and stuffed with salon poodle hair and gaga wig! Oh, it's headed right at us and it's pushing a vast slew of dispersion! It's going to sop us up! Why, why, why did you just let Pete and me off right here at Gas War Island, okay? Uh, well, thanks, fellas. Good luck with the whitening whale. No worries, lads. I've never met an oil disaster as slick as me. This is Peter Bergman and David Osmond, completely at sea for Radio Free Oz, hoping that all's well with this oil well. Uh, where do we go to get a drink, Peter? No, where's the helicopter pad? Yo ho! You've got Oz in your ears because you're listening to Radio Free Oz coming to you from RadioFreeOz.com. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. Our co-host, David Oz. Oh, hi, Peter. I'm just waking up here. Just waking up? Oh, yeah. Huh? Long uh, weekend? Mm, well, you know, it's, it's summer out there. and It tends to make you a little, you know, drowsy in the afternoon and in the evening and... All that, uh, you know. All the time. So I just wake it up. What what, what are we going to do today? Well, I do want to remind you that this yeah. is the World Wide Web, Uncle Dave, and it's possible that half the people listening to us are in dead heat of winter, you know. Well, it could be that half of them are asleep, too. That's true, because winter you? puts you to sleep there also. There you go. It just makes you want to go right into your little kid. Go get you know, you know if we had an international on, sleep day where everybody slept the whole day, think of the resources we would say. Think about the negative carbon footprint of international I'm asleep all day day. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think that's a very good idea. Yeah. Stay in bed day. Well, didn't uh, didn't Johnny Yoko try to do that, you know? They did. Get, you get know. in bed for peace. Yeah, and all they got was, was gaggles of reporters hanging around them. I guess they they could have expected that when, you know, when someone who's more popular than Jesus Christ, at least according to John, you know, goes to bed with an Oriental woman. It's 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 news. It is news. I mean, it's was well. Is that the news of the day? How did we get there? My goodness! International uh, sleep through the day day. Yeah, a good idea. Don't do that today because well, Oz is in your ears. Well, I don't know. I think I'm going to start right. Now. Oh God! It really hits me when you do that, Pete. <sighs> The Golden State turns to tin from the Huffington Post. As the Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger was the technology of the future, feared by humans. As governor, he's being foiled by the technology of the past. For the second time in two years, Schwarzenegger has ordered most state workers' pay cut to the federal minimum wage because lawmakers missed their deadline to fix the state's $19 billion budget deficit. The legislature's failure to act has left the state without a spending plan as the new fiscal year begins. And it is the NOP all over again. I'm a California refugee. I was there for decades. I know how this goes down. This time, it's the rural California Republicans who frustrate any budget by refusing to vote for any new tax cut of any 
kind. No, no, no. California needs a supermajority to pass a tax, and the Republican bumpkins would rather see their state go down in flames, taking everybody with it, than breach their holy writ of no new taxes. They are ayatollahs, no doubt about it. They are destroying an economy that ranks in the world's top 10 out of pure ignorance and spite. Is there nothing that can be done with these dangerous anarchists? Now, a state appellate court ruled in Schwarzenegger's favor, but the state controller, this is like cutting everything to the minimum wage. Of course, now state employees are going to know what it's like to work for the minimum wage. No fun, not a lot of bucks. So the state appellate court has supported this move by Schwarzenegger, uh, but the state controller who issues the state paycheck says he can't comply. One reason given by controller John Chang, a Democrat elected in 2006, probably because he wants a political future, is that the state's computer system can't handle the technological challenge of restating paychecks to the federal minimum of $7.25 an hour. Just can't do it. It's not like going in and going, okay, it's no longer $15.40 or $80 an hour at $7.25. It's much more complicated than that. Chang said the Third District Court of Appeals, which said unfeasibility would excuse him from complying with the Schwarzenegger's minimum wage order, would make it indeed okay for him to say no. He said a fix to the state's computerized payroll system won't be ready until, ready, October 2012. Talk about lead time. Meanwhile, more than 200,000 state workers remain in limbo about the size of their July paychecks, while Chang asks the court for guidance on how to proceed. Like, the judges can give him real guidance, like, sweat it out, get a new job, wear a hood so they won't recognize you. If wages are indeed cut to $7.25 an hour, employees will be reimbursed once a budget is signed. But wait a minute. Reimburse them with what? There are tons of vendors out there who are holding worthless chits, or at least up to this point, worthless chits and invoices from the Golden State. The state's payroll system was designed, by the way, more than 60 years ago and was last revamped in 1970. We're talking 40 years. Uh, this according to Haley Johns, Haley Jordan, State Controller's Office spokeswoman. That's what she said in an email probably didn't want to put her voice print on this one. The Golden State, it's rusting in front of our very eyes, but I didn't think gold can rust. Talk to the Terminator. It's a big, bad problem. And as we're about to learn, California is not alone. Oh, Pete, I'm sorry. You know, I just realized uh, what it is on this uh, uh, international sleep day day that's, that's got to be. You know, I used to, I used to do jolt and and Red Bull and Rockstar and all those, you know, give me that triple calf and give me wake Full me up. Full throttle, well, yeah. Well, I've been trying uh, Unwind and, and Snoozeberry and I Chill and Dream Water. Oh, and, and there's one here called Coma Unwind Chillixation and, 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 and Drank. And drank. Drank. All I remember uh, before I passed out is that I drank. Is that what? Really well, was? drank. If you drink, drank, it prevents jet lag. So they say. And a drink called Blue Cow says it can improve concentration. I couldn't remember to drink it. Relieve, that was the problem. Relieve anxiety and <clears throat> irritability from fatigue, and uh, and then there's mini chill, and some users have reported better sex lives, but. <clears throat> Yeah, California's in trouble, but here comes Illinois. Even by the standards of this deficit-ridden state, Illinois's controller, Daniel W. Hines, faces an ugly balance sheet. Precisely how ugly uh, becomes clear when he beckons you into his office to examine his daily briefing memo. So let's go in there. Right Here he goes. He picks up the papers on his desk and points to a figure in red. $5.01 billion. Let's round it off. It's a $5 billion problem. He says, this is what the state owes right now to schools, rehabilitation centers, childcare, the state university, and it's getting worse every single day, every single moment, actually. Uh, this is what he says in his poor little downtown office. I, I pity the man. Mr. Hines shakes his head. This is not some esoteric budget issue. We are not paying bills for absolutely essential services. 
This is obscene. So this is the kind of pornography we allow to happen day by day. It's all the stuff on the web and all the billboards and the adult stores that we have to worry about while the state creates an obscene system of non-payment. For the last few years, California stood more or less unchallenged as a symbol of the fiscal collapse of states during the, re the recession. We just did the story on the Terminator. Well, now, hey, Illinois has shouldered to the fore as its dysfunctional political class refuses to pay the state's bills and refuses to take the painful steps, cuts, and tax increases. So on one side, generally the Democrats, I don't want to make this too stereotypical, they don't want to cut standard services, particularly, you know, safety net services. And I can understand this, and infrastructure services, and education, and prisons, etc. On the other hand, the Republicans, again, generally the Republicans, won't raise taxes. We are, by the way, a totally undertaxed society. And, of course, we give tax breaks to the very bozos who don't need it. So they won't cut services or raise taxes to close a deficit of at least $12 billion, equal to nearly half the state's budget, which is what? Six days of the conflict in Afghanistan plus the rest of the DOD's budget. There is a way to get this money. Then there is the spectacularly mismanaged pension system, which is at least 50% underfunded and analysts warn could push Illinois into insolvency if the economy fails to pick up, which it is going to fail to do. So the pension system, people have worked long and hard, or at least long, are going to be looking at what? Half their pension or no pension at all? Oh my golly, where's Woody Guthrie when we need him? States cannot go bankrupt technically, just technically, but signs of fiscal crack-up are easy to see. Legislatures left the Capitol in the month of July, or actually in the month of June, without deciding how to pay 26% of the state budget. Let's go home! This is too much of a problem. Let's go home, have a couple of brewskis, and, and lie to our constituents. The governor proposes to borrow $3.5 billion to cover a year's worth of pension payments, a step that would cost about a billion in interest. Wait a minute. That's almost 33% interest. Where does the word usury come to mind here? And who's going to loan it to him? The mob? And every major rating agency has downgraded the state. Illinois now pays millions of dollars more to insure its debt than any other state in the nation. Yeah, when I say the mob, they're probably the, they're the lenders of last resort. And you can see their enforcers waiting outside the governor's door ready to break his legs if they don't get their vig. Quote, their pension is the most underfunded in the nation, said Karen S. Kropp, a senior director at Fitch Ratings. They have not made significant cuts or raised revenues. There's no state out there like this. They can't grow this. They can't grow their way out of this. No, and they can't hide. As the recession has swept across states and cities, it has laid bare economic weaknesses and shoddy fiscal practices. Only an infusion of federal stimulus money allowed many states to avert deep layoffs last year. And of course... Most of that stimulus is gone. Yes, those federal dollars are nearly spent. Last month, local governments nationwide shed more than, get ready, 20,000 jobs just last month. And state jobs are jobs that you expect to last a lifetime. They are cradle-to-grave cradle jobs. You don't go in and become a state employee with the thought of, well, I'll spend a couple of years here, get, a, get my team together, and go over and work for IBM. No, you're there. That's part. And a lot of them are very, very dedicated people. So we reward their dedication by firing them. Should the largest struggling states like California, New York, Illinois lay off tens of thousands more in coming months or default on payments, the reverberations could badly damage the weaken economy and push housing prices down still further. So that's the deal. They won't cut services. Many services really can't be cut without, without thoroughly downgrading the the, the style of life of people who are poor and disadvantaged. It also affects the lower middle class. It affects us all. They won't raise taxes because the NOP sitting out there generally in the rural areas can frustrate the process. So we're looking at bankruptcy, default, loss of jobs. It's a continuum that's leading to disaster. Yeah. Okay. Get ready for the permaculture generation. 
I'm on the phone with David Bloom, energy expert. He's the uh, author of Alcohol Can Be a Gas. We've talked with him already. This is our second interview. We're talking about ethanol as a substitute for or as a co-fuel with oil. David, good to have you back on, on the Skype with me. I'm always glad to be here. Well, here's the thing. Um, you know, ethanol, like anything else, has to be produced. And when you produce anything, it, it, it there is energy used. It has some sort of a, what you might call, carbon footprint. How efficient is it? And what sort of pollution is involved with producing ethanol? And what's the best way to do it? Well, there's a couple of ways to look at that. First of all, you need to know how ethanol, ethanol is made. And it's made by plants. Mm-hmm. So plants take in carbon dioxide from the air, mm-hmm. water from the sky, and sunlight. So those three things are uh, combined in photosynthesis, and we call them carbohydrates. Carbo for carbon dioxide, hydrate for water. So we're actually pulling CO2 out of the air when we go ahead and make alcohol from starches and sugars. Uh, When we go ahead and burn the alcohol in the car, what comes out the tailpipe is what went in, carbon dioxide and water, but what drives the car down the road is the solar energy. The difference between alcohol and, say, fossil fuels like gasoline is that the CO2 coming out of the tailpipe is used by next year's alcohol crop to make next year's fuel. So we are recycling the CO2 that we make each year with the car to come back to be next year's fuel. Oil doesn't have that recycling quality because the plants that made oil are have been dead for millions of years, and plants don't... Um, those plants are you know, not currently producing. So we're burning the old plants and adding CO2 to the air with oil. But with alcohol, we're constantly recycling. Uh, well, and what, just plants, say, go ahead. Go ahead, please. Go ahead. Well, plants actually take much more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere than what ends up in the alcohol. The stalks, the roots, and uh, actually the plants exude sugar into the soil to feed all that soil microlife. So in some studies, we see up to 13 times the CO2 being taken out of the air than what is given off in the manufacture and burning of the alcohol. So if you want to reverse global warming, increase photosynthesis. Well, let me ask you something. What about, I've heard, and this indeed may just be apocryphal, that it it takes more energy to create uh, ethanol than it gives back as a fuel. What about that? Is that just not true? That's a... Well, that's an interesting study that was done by David Pimentel back in 1980 and then repeated over and over since. It turned out that David Pimentel was in the employ of Mobile Oil at oh, the no. time. Oh, no. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Yes. And, uh, and in fact, Mobile complained loudly when people exposed that fact to the public. And David Pimentel, in an interview with myself, reversed that completely and said, of course, if you make uh, alcohol and you use organic methods to grow our crops to do it, you'd, of course, you know, have a a big energy return. So, um, you know, basically what we've been told over time is kind of a selective quote of nonsense. And the real facts are, for instance, in Brazil, they get nine times the energy out for every unit of energy in. But the unit of energy in is not oil. It's the sugar cane fiber left over after they squeeze the juice out to make the alcohol. They burn the fiber, which is renewable, and they're able to make all the steam and electricity they need to run the plant and put electricity back in the grid. So with alcohol, we don't really need to use any fossil fuels to make it at all. Are you telling me then, you know, like they say, hey, these infomercials, are you telling me that we can successfully replace a significant amount of oil with alcohol as a general fuel? Well, there's a couple of little countries out there like India and Brazil, you know, little postage-sized places. And and Brazil now imports no oil whatsoever to run their vehicles. Really? 95% of the cars run on alcohol right now in Brazil. Well, let me ask you something then. This is very interesting. What are you doing to make this possible besides promoting it with with interviews like this and various uh, affairs? are, Are you actually producing equipment that can make this possible? Well, we do two things. One, we have a book, Alcohol P- Can Be a Gas, which teaches people how to build their own equipment if oh. they're the handy sort. Right. So, you know, the idea is that making alcohol is, well, mankind's second oldest profession. It's not exactly all that complicated. But for the people who are more uh, interested in just getting down to business and making alcohol, 
and all the great byproducts that come from doing that, we are now starting to uh, manufacture equipment that will allow small business people, entrepreneurs, uh, municipalities that control the dump, or even turn sewage into cattails and make alcohol from that. So the, pl- the equipment we're doing is very small. It's not like the 100 million gallon per year plants yeah. that yeah. industry has in the Midwest, which have environmental problems. These are like 120,000 gallon per year plants that could fuel you and 100 of your best friends uh, you know, because uh, most people use about 500 to 1,000 gallons a year, and you can use it to replace your fuel oil. You can use it to uh, generate electricity. So you can really unplug yourself from the fossil fuel companies uh, if you just go ahead and um, make alcohol, sell it to your friends and neighbors in the community. Well, this is very exciting, and we'll be back again with with another interview. Others uh, want to find out, uh, you know, where the outreach is with with, with ethanol, who's using it, and how you can uh, develop, you know, local ways to make this happen. Thank you very much, David Bloom. Thank you. Yeah, I grew up in Cleveland. And it was a big car town. We made Chevys and Ford's huge factories. And my dad only drove Chevrolets. He was a GM booster. So I grew up with the idea of GM being, and in fact, at that time, the great American company that makes cars for America. Everybody in America drives a GM or something like it. Well, guess what? China has become the top sales market for General Motors, the iconic American automaker owned... By who? By the U.S. taxpayers. If somebody had told me when I was driving around in my dad's 1947, you know, Chevrolet coupe that someday China would be buying more of these and us folks in the Buckeye State, well, I would have had myself a chuckle. Through the first six months of this year, GM and its Chinese joint venture partners have sold 1.21 million vehicles in China, the company announced recently. Its U.S. sales came in at 1.08. So we only get the silver, and probably soon, the bronze. GM's Chinese auto sales are growing at a blistering pace, up 48.5% over the first half of the year. I know, when I was in Beijing, mainly in Beijing, but also in Shanghai, everybody in the party was driving a black Buick. So there's a lot of people in the party, and they're selling a lot of black Buicks. GM's U.S. sales are also showing improvement, enough to keep its U.S. plants operating during what would normally be a summer shutdown, and that's good news. But the growth is a far more modest 15% in the first half of the year. And it ain't lasting. Car sales are down as people lose jobs. Uh, construction's down 20%, so the construction workers can't go out and buy them fine new trucks. So there you go. So there are some market dynamics beyond one's control, said Don Johnson, GM's new vice president of U.S. sales operations. You know, a lot of these execs now have these really kind of vanilla names, Don Johnson. I wonder if, they've, if he's maybe a robot. Certainly, what's working on a weekend to a robot. Personally, he says, and how can a robot say personally, I think that's a good thing that China's growth is helping GM. Our China operation will always play an important role in our company, but fundamentally, we're a U.S. company and will always be a U.S. company. Uh-oh. When they say things like, that's ominous. Whenever a CEO says something like this, it will always be etc., etc. It usually means that other plans are afoot. GM moves to Shanghai. Years of ongoing losses in its home market and a sharp plunge right, in sales uh, starting in 2008 caused the company, GM, to file for bankruptcy. And during its reorganization, it shed plants, workers, dealerships, and much of its debt owed to bondholders. That was nice. It emerged with the help of a $50 billion bailout from U.S. taxpayers. Yeah, when I drive through the the Northwest here uh, on like on five, more than once you go by these closed car dealerships, GM, Ford, Chrysler, whatever, just shuttered these huge lots with with, with the sale signs still up, you know, August bang them out sale, twice for half and more, and there's just nobody there. See our salesman in the back. <laughs> there's nothing in the back but coyotes. GM's ability to pay back that bailout will depend upon its planned sale of stock to the public later this year or early next year. That's going to be a tough sale. The value of its Chinese operations is expected to be a significant part of the value of that stock when it hits the market. We're GM. We're China. So we have to bet on China to get our $50 billion back. Hmm. Makes you wonder. 
34th Street. 34th Street could surely use a miracle. I could use a small one myself. A miracle is something you meet halfway. On the corner of 34th Street, there's some young rappers hawking their homemade CDs, telling everybody that their stuff was real and representing. Now, real and representing is kind of elusive these days. And further down the street, there's three Asian ladies with bright, bright, bright yellow t-shirts they say, Reverend Park, they're telling us we have to go see him. So when we do, we get a one-way ticket to heaven when we leave the building. And further down the street, the guys show up with the $5 Chanel smells. And as I keep walking, comes the folks with the $125 designer handbag, just 1995 but they spot us, spies, the cops, and they scoot. And then I notice a gigantic concrete flower pot with five little beautiful flowers growing and giant, giant leaves. I go closer and closer and closer to the leaves, blocking out the street like a kid who goes underneath his covers with a flashlight trying to discover the underground. Everybody else is shopping, moving fast, walking, wondering where it is, even though they know they came in with it. This one from The Gray Lady. It was only one paragraph buried deep in the most plain vanilla kind of diplomatic document, 40 pages of dry language committing a 189 nations to a world free of nuclear weapons. But it has become the latest source of friction between Israel and the United States in a relationship that has lurched from crisis to crisis over the last few months. At a meeting to review the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty in May, the United States yielded to demands by Arab nations that the final document urge Israel to sign the treaty, a way of spotlighting its historically undeclared nuclear weapons. Israel believed it had assurances from the Obama administration that it would reject efforts to include such a reference, an Israeli official said, and it saw this as another sign of unreliability by its most important ally. In a recent visit to Washington, Israel's defense minister, Ehud Barak, raised the issue in meetings with senior American officials. What I want to know is just why Israel won't cop to a fact that is widely known. They've had nukes for years, and they threw a guy in jail who blew the whistle. What are they hiding, and how long are we supposed to support this obvious deception? Some analysts said the nuclear proliferation issue symbolizes why Israel remains insecure about the intentions of the Obama administration. It also may be why surrounding neighbors uh, of Israel's remain insecure about their intentions. In addition to singling out Israel, the document, which has captured relatively little public attention, calls for a regional conference in 2012 to lay the groundwork for a nuclear-free zone in the Middle East. A good idea, huh? Israel, whose nuclear arsenal is one of the world's worst-kept secrets, would be on the hot seat at such a meeting. Yes, a hot seat upon which they deserve. Maybe we can just get things going. What about a nuclear-free Near East? Isn't that a very good idea? At the last review conference in 2005, the Bush administration refused to go along with any references to Israel, one of several reasons the meeting ended in acrimony without any statement. This time, Israel believed the Obama administration would again take up its cause. As a non-signatory to the treaty, Israel did not attend the meeting, but American officials consulted the Israelis on a text in advance, which they found acceptable. A person familiar with those discussions said that deepened their surprise at the end. The United States, American officials said, faced a hard choice. Refusing to compromise with the Arab states on Israel would have sunk the entire review conference. Given the emphasis that Mr. Obama has placed on nonproliferation, the United States could not accept such an outcome. It also would complicate the administration's attempt to build bridges to the Arab world, an effort that is at the heart of some of the disagreements between the United States and Israel. Israel's not happy with Barack Obama because Barack Obama, by no means an anti-Zionist and certainly not an anti-Semite, just isn't going to go along with an unreal 
and unproductive relationship. They're making speeches, 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 speeches to the streets. They're making speeches, speeches, speeches to the streets. Oh, you see them on the corner and you see them growing old. The city drove them crazy, put their minds on hold. They're talking to somebody, but nobody knows who. They're busy making speeches and they can't see you. They're making speeches. Speeches, speeches, speeches to the streets. They're making speeches, speeches, speeches to the streets. Once upon a time they had a dream like me and you. But now it's too late to make their dreams come true. So one talks to the president, the other to the wall. But no one's saying anything to anyone at all. They're making speeches, 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 speeches to the streets. They're making speeches, speeches, speeches to the streets. Talk to me now. Talking to the gang She don't hear the DJ Or the song I just sang And everybody's talking Who's to say who's right or wrong Cause while they make their speech I keep on singing my song I'm making speeches 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 to the streets Making speeches Speeches I'm on the phone with Jenny Pell, permaculture designer, consultant, and educator, and someone who is going to bring the whole world of permaculture here uh, to Radio Free Oz. Nice to have you on the phone, Jenny. Really. Oh, it's great to be here, Peter. So here's the thing. We, we hear this word permaculture a lot now, and, and a lot of people hear it, including myself, and are not really certain what it means. Give us a background in, in the term and, and the work that you're doing in, in this rapidly developing, and I would say crucial field. Sure. Well, the, the easiest way to look at permaculture is that it's a design approach. It's a design methodology for realizing sustainable and abundant human settlements. And it's kind of a very quick way of saying that we look at all the systems we need to support a really thriving local human economy and biodiverse ecosystem and abundant and redundant water systems right where we live. So it's segues perfectly into looking at uh, post-carbon or carbon-neutral ways of being in the world, whether you're in an urban setting, a suburban, or a rural setting. So we want to provide for our own food and for small livestock, or in a larger setting, larger livestock. We want to have cisterns and ponds. We want to have bee forage and all kinds of products that we're going to make from our immediate environment, and also looking at developing cottage industries that can build skills right in our local community to support all those systems. Well, Jenny, 
I just want to tell you, I'm, I'm sorry to break in, but when I, hear you, when I hear you speaking, it almost brings tears to my eyes. And the reason is, is that I know we're going through a great change in this country. And the kind of structures and the kind of science you're talking about, practical science, I think is going to really lead us into a new Eden. So I just wanted to tell you that. So please, please go on. I'm sorry if I broke your train of thought, but it's really important that you know how yeah. important this, this, this really is. What's happened, particularly in the Western culture, is that in the last, let's say, three to four generations, the amount of skills that we have lost is, is stunning. Yep. People don't know how to grow food. They don't even know how, if they do grow food, they don't know how to tell when it's ripe and they're supposed to harvest it. They have what I call harvest phobia. They don't know. They'll go to the store and buy kale rather than pick it out of their yard if they've grown it. They don't know how to fix things. People don't know how to even assess how much water that they're using. They just get a water bill and pay it. Right. So there's a really great story about um, in Australia now they've mandated uh, water collection off the roof, and people get a little meter in their house that tells them how much water that they're using and how quickly that's going down in their cisterns. Oh. So they found that just like overnight, the minute that that system goes in, people reduce their water consumption up to 50%, just seeing how much water that they're using. That's terrific. It really is. Yeah, so we're looking at, yeah. So we're trying to find like the most practical, sensible, common sense solutions that are very low tech in a very appropriate technology way to get people to be living locally, but living large. So passive solar hot water, passive solar design features for houses, um, finding the, look, looking around the world at what will grow in your particular climate, but come from other places that are delicious and prolific. So Kiwis, for example, grow in Seattle. Yeah. They're great. You pick them in the fall, but they come ripe in January, February, so you have winter fruits. Wonderful. And you know, what you're talking about is not only very doable, it really smacks of the real American spirit. I mean, as Winston Churchill said, America always does the right thing after doing all the wrong things. And we've done... <laughs> We have done all the wrong things, and it's now time to do the right thing. So let me ask you, I've introduced you both as a designer and a consultant and an educator. To whom are you consulting? And then I want to find out how you can help educate us in this uh, technique of grand technique of permaculture. Okay, so right now I have, um, in my consulting work, I'm, I'm living in a city, I live in Seattle, and so I get hired to come to people's urban houses, front yards, backyards, side yards, and assess what they can grow there according to their time and their budget and if it faces south or, you know, the different variables on their particular lot. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, a lot of my clients, I'd say 80% of those folks, in two hours I can come on site, whip out a bunch of sketches, make a plant list, and almost give them permission. Like, they're really keen to do it already. Yeah. And they know that they want to do it. And a lot of it's about, I specialize in edible perennials and vertical food and building trellises and arbors yeah. and some of those things. And then some of them will want to go on to put in some cistern systems, like a cistern, a water catchment system, or they want to put in um, a rainwater garden. So we have salmon in our waterways here in Seattle. And when the rainwater washes all the oily, grime off the streets, it really damages the salmon runs. And so right. Seattle Public Utilities is partnering all over the city to put in rain rainwater gardens that will infiltrate water into the soil and bioremediate it that way. Bioremediate. So yeah, bioremediate it, which means cleanse it through, through natural biological processes within the earth. Is that correct? That's right. And if you look at mycoremediation, which is through fungi, which is another way of doing it is that the, the fungi actually is the main decomposer in our ecosystems. The mycoremediation piece, um, they actually, the, the fungi can break down the carbon bond, and so it will break down the going product. Um, byproducts. Oh. So we do a lot of fungi stuff in our systems as well. Well, it's a, it's a mushrooming yeah. business, so to speak. No, it's I mean, a mushrooming <laughs> business. Indeed it is. And guess what? They Mushrooms really like to grow on coffee grounds. So in Seattle, it's perfect. Really? And in, in um, fact, when I don't throw mine out in time, I've gotten large <laughs> crops of mushrooms. I won't eat them because I'm afraid. Right. Now, one other thing, I'm trying to get a lot in a short time, and we're going to have many other sessions with you, but education. Where can people okay, so I, go? Yeah, what do you do, and where can people go to get a taste of this? Okay, so I do public speaking, lectures, and slideshows. I teach workshops, sometimes one-day, sometimes two-day workshops. Mm -hmm. And I have one coming up the end of July on passive solar hot water, mm -hmm. which you can do in Seattle nine months of the year. 
I have, um, I'll be teaching a workshop on edible hedges Ooh. and how to grow different fruiting shrubs that some of them are medicinal, some of them are just edible, some of them are for wildlife, and ones that also um, add soil tilth. Uh-huh. I will be, I'm also working on a new lecture series on what I'm calling the, it's a storytelling lecture on peak. So we're coming to this peak moment of peak oil and peak water and peak population and all these different peaks or sort of a confluence of peaks happening. And I'm helping people to look at it rather than the same, same graph of this huge precipitous incline up the energy ascent last hundred years. What does it look like down the other side? And if we can start to participate in a permaculture world where you're planting food and collecting water and understanding how ponds work and looking at your systems in a different way, the profile out the other side of the peak is very different. So how do I get people to participate in the storytelling by living the story themselves right now? Very good. And in fact, uh, I want to make sure people know where to go to get Your website is permaculture.com. And nope, my website no, is permaculture now. I, I read it wrong. Permaculture now, not just permaculture. Now is when we need it. Well, permaculture now, not permaculture later. Permaculture. Before I go, I just want to mention that the edible hedges, I wish we had edible hedge funds so we could eat those bastards up who have been taking us for a ride. But that's another that kind of good. permaculture. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll be back. Jenny Pell, permaculture, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Here's a nice little coincidence um, reported by the London Telegraph. It seems the chief executive of BP sold $3 million worth of his shares in the fuel giant just weeks before the Gulf of Mexico oil spill caused its value to collapse. Tony Hayward cashed in about a third of his holding in the company one month before a well in the Deepwater Horizon rig burst, causing an environmental disaster. And why don't they mention again and again, killing 11 men? And why isn't there a memorial for them? Mr. Hayward, whose pay package is about $8 million a year, then paid off the mortgage on his family's mansion in Kent, which is estimated to be valued at more than $2.5 million. That's where he's going to go when the crowds with the torches come looking for him. There was no suggestion that he acted improperly or had prior knowledge that the company was to face the biggest setback in its history. His decision, however, means he avoided losing more than a million dollars when BP's share price plunged after the oil spill six weeks ago. Well, you know what they say. If you can't drill it, spill it. One of the nice things about being in a an election year, it seems that every year is an election year, by the way. I mean, you know, we're always talking. People are always running for something. It, it, you get you get a chance to really get into some very interesting characters, like our certifiable Senate, senatorial candidate in Kentucky, Rand Paul. Now, he wants to build a fence along the U.S. border. Nothing unusual in that, is there, David? No, no. Senator Dang fence yeah. is right with him. Yep. Yeah, that, that's all, except that Paul wants the fence to be electric, and he wants it built underground. Wait a minute. A fence underground? Yeah. I yeah. don't. I, I have a, a well, we, You know the way people are training dogs now where they put those special collars on them and if they go past a certain place, there's wires they underground. They electrocute the dog. It they falls over. The dog. So yeah, yeah, I guess right. he wants to put collars on potential illegal aliens, undocumented people. Nice collars probably, you know, mm-hmm. with a little style. He's, he dresses well, kind of. And then if they try to come across the border, oh, que lastima, and they go back home. Uh-huh. Right, How so, do you get the collars on the Mexicans? Hold on. Okay. Among the variety of proposals to stem illegal immigrants, uh, the construction of an underground electric fence appears to stand alone on the extreme. I think that Huff is being kind here. There is little contemporary evidence of other Republican officials proposing such a project, even among the most conservative of the bunch. Indeed, when approached in the halls of the Senate and asked about the idea, though not told who proposed it, National Republican Senate Committee Chair John Cornyn, they don't come any right-winger than him, assumed it was a joke. Well, you know what? It is a joke. So in a speech in downtown Paducah, Kentucky, Paul pegged the cost of his quixotic idea somewhere between 10 and $15 million. That's cheap. That's a small change. Yeah. The benefits of an underground fence, he argued, were that it would not have the symbolism of a Berlin Wall-like structure and it would be considered less offensive to Hispanic voters who are already fleeing the country. 
less offensive to Hispanic voters who are already fleeing the country? I don't get where this man's coming from. No, he I... isn't paying his syntax. One of my favorite political buffoons, Michael Steele, who's head of the Republican National Committee and whom one person described as having the gravitas of a balloon, is in trouble for, in many ways, in certain ways, telling it like it is. He was at a fundraiser in Connecticut and basically criticized the Obama administration and said in so many words that the Afghanistan war was unwinnable. You've probably seen the video. If you haven't, go on up. Everybody's sitting around in this tent eating chicken a la king and steel is way in the background, walking around, talking and talking, and nobody seems to be paying attention, but you can hear his comments. He called them the crystal incident comical, And then he went on to say that the war in Afghanistan is Obama's war. And he says, well, if Obama's such a student of history, why doesn't he understand that the one thing you don't engage in is a land war in Afghanistan? You're right. All right, he says, because everybody who has tried over a thousand years of history has failed, and there are reasons for that. There are other ways to engage in Afghanistan. Of course, he doesn't go into what those various alternative solutions are, because he is indeed a large, self-involved windbag. But all of a sudden, the right and the left are jumping on Michael Steele and they're calling for him to resign except for one Republican, America's leading libertarian ideologue, Ron Paul, right? He says no. He should not resign. He wants to congratulate Michael Steele for his leadership on one of the most important issues today. He says he's absolutely right. Afghanistan is now Obama's war. And he says, I have to ask myself, what is the agenda of the harsh critics demanding this resignation? Why do they support Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama's war? Barack Obama's war? What a totally naive assessment. Afghanistan is no more Obama's war than World War II was Roosevelt's war. Just because he campaigned in 1940 saying he was going to keep us out of the war, events made that impossible. Obama inherited Afghanistan from Bush and every other American policymaker stretching back three decades when the CIA joined up with Pakistani intelligence and a variety of Afghan warlords to teach the Russians a lesson. Remember, we pledged to make Afghanistan Russia's Vietnam, and it's part of a much larger geopolitical strategy. Not a good strategy, or very well thought out, and I would certainly like us to stop trying to build pipelines and nations in the area, but to call it Obama's war displays the kind of ideological tunnel vision that Ron may very well have passed on to his son. Why don't we just run an underground electric fence along the Afghan-Pakistan border and solve the whole problem once and for all? Well, David, as you know, the uh, Speaker of the House, it's not Speaker of the House, the guy that wants to be Speaker of the House, uh, John Bomer, the member, the ranking member there of the NOP, Mr. Suntan, Mm -hmm. right? Well, he's been kind of putting his foot in the mouth recently, you know, like he talked about, uh, you know, first he sticks his foot in the mouth about BP's liability for the Gulf Coast oil spill, and then he hand-delivered the Democrats' campaign ad by comparing the economy to an ant. And to an ant. To yep. an ant. That's yep. good. Right? I, and an atom bomb to an ant, right? Yeah, is, bro- yeah that's what it, we did. Similes are... But go ahead. Well, it didn't seem like a good week for him. First, he blundered, you know, belittled the economic woes. Mm-hmm. Then he touched the third world of American politics by proposing the Social Security retirement age be raised. That really goes well with the over 45 crowd. Oh. He wanted the people to retire not until and not get their Social Security until 70. By 70. midweek, a uh, top Republican yeah. on national cable was calling him lazy. That was Scarborough a former representative, but to hear the Republicans tell it, things are all going according to plan. Uh, Do you think, they asked him, do you think the president, in slamming you because Obama took him on, does that mean he's worried about you taking over the House? And a reporter asked the minority leader. His spokesman, Bomer himself couldn't speak because his foot was still in his mouth. Firmly planted. Answered yes. And private conversations with aides in both parties admit the potential of the speaker's gavel has a lot to do with Bomer's new strategy. I don't think so. I think he's a useless idiot. Mm, This is a strategy. This is a strategy. Democrats, of course, couldn't be happier. It's hard to believe the Republicans are serious when they say that several days of bad publicity are all part of a plan. A bad plan, perhaps. Yeah, that could be a plan. Sure. Let's just screw ourselves up for the next week and see what happens in the press. Look look what happened to that general. 
Yeah, but you know, Bo- but yes, Bo- Bomer says being aggressive on purpose has elevated himself to merit an Obama SWAT down. It raises John Bomer to the president's level. Oh yeah, to the oh. president's level. I would jack him up to the president's uh-huh. level. Yeah. And uh, whether they meant to do it or not, they have a GOP aide said in an interview. The new strategy is to start throwing some of your own back, using the media attention to highlight the party's messages for the fall elections. And by the way, I'd like to ask you. And what message is that? What? Uh, I think it's the message that if you reach behind you, grab something and throw it, why? That's giving some of your own that's back. That's giving some of your own back. Scrape you it know? up and throw it, it, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, they've got a message that, what, the double-dip recession has now matured into a full-fledged depression, but it's no more formidable than an ant. Now, there's a message you take to the polls, right? Okay. I'd take it to the Swedes, maybe. I would take <laughs> I don't think I'd take it to the polls. They have enough trouble of their own. Well well Bomer has his supporters. Representative Mike Pierce, chairman of the Republican Conference, said Bomer is just plain spoken. Now that's my code for being an unpredictable idiot, but you know, yeah, as you yeah. will. Pierce also battled back against MSNBC personality and uh, uh, former uh, representative Joe Scarborough, who uh-huh. suggested there on MSNBC that Bomer is not a hard worker and hits the bars in Washington most nights by 6 p.m. His quote, the Republican leader is working, oh, no, excuse me, Pierce came back after hearing that he was accused yeah. of being a barfly, says, Republican leader is working harder to win back the American Congress for the common sense and common values of the American people than anybody I know, Pierce says. Probably drinks that awful beer, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, wait a minute. What common sense and what common values, right? Well, it's that common beer. That's what took me right there. I thought common sense, common values. It's like Budweiser light. Yeah, he is the Budweiser light. He's the Bud Light of the GOP party. But he is a barfly. I mean, everybody finds him there in Georgetown. Six on the button, you know, because he's, he's a solid happy hour drinker. By the way, notice how imprecise Pierce is when he delineates the NOP agenda. No real ideas. Just defense of some vague common sense and equally diffuse common values. Common sense, common values. A little nothing about nothing. Well, I was thinking about all those oil-soaked waves in the Gulf, that picture of that the surf up, and there's this kind of like no, brownish tan covering that comes up with the waves, kind of like Hokusai oil spill. And I thought of the fact that, you know, for a wave to break, it means the relationship of the height of the wave and its de- and the depth and the depth of the of the water that it's in, in other words, how far it is from the bottom, reaches a critical point and it breaks. And the same with this show. We come to a point where it breaks and we have to come to an end. But not without I'm sorry, I fell asleep. Was that the physics lesson? Oh my oh. I forgot it's International Sleep Day oh, Day. Golly, I should just, never uh, have gotten that deep. Excuse <laughs> certainly me. Certainly not. Well I got a I do have I've got uh, I've got a little Wang Wei here for you. Well if, God, if you show me your Wang Wei, I'll show you mine. <laughs> I got a better Ma- Wang Wei than you do. Don't go there. Here we are. Waking no, walking in mountains in the rain. Good, good. I thought it was waking there for a minute. Yeah, because you know, of the sleep day day. But okay. go ahead. Give us the real, because Wang would never forgive you if you, okay. if you began to extrapolate on his fine poetry. In this quick cloudburst, air thickens. The sky comes down. Dark mountains. Flashes of lightning. Out at sea, new clouds have just started to form. And this small brook I straddle is a river in flood somewhere. Rags and blankets of mist hang on these slopes and cliffs. Then the clouds open and vanish, rain patters off, and moonlight silvers the whole reach of the river, foothills to ocean. And even from this black mountain, I can hear boatmen singing. Well, that's Oz for today, brought to you by the fabulous Oz team. I'm Peter Bergman, your host, my fabulous co-host, Dave Osmond. John Cumming finds us the stats, no matter how deeply they are hidden. Phil Fountain finds the beauty in everything. Tom Gedwillow makes sure the website is there for you. Chaz Glass has the figures. Dave Maloney has the audio touch. Bill McIntyre is L producer. And Scott Wilde says, keep it in the social media. Tomorrow and tomorrow and yay. See you tomorrow.